0: All right, if you would, turn with me to Acts chapter 20. We're going to be looking at 17 through 38, which is the end of the chapter. So it's Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 38. As we turn there, um, I just, this morning, uh, kind of as an introduction to the sermon, which is a little different than I normally would do. uh, Well, everything about this sermon is going to look different than I would normally do. Uh, Normally, I would look word for word as we walk through the text. We're not going to do that through the whole thing. Um, And I'm not big on a lot of personal examples. Uh, But this morning, I do find the need to uh, just kind of express this uh, as we get in this text. And it's really just um, about us as a church and what brought us here and why we're here and all of those things. Um, And though that Redeemer's mission would be to be a multi-demographic community of believers for the purpose of glorifying God by proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, resting in Christ. This morning, I want to speak very briefly on how um, and why. Sarah and I felt strongly about planting Redeemer here in Columbus. And then after that is when we called all of you guys uh, and connected with you guys. And eventually you made it here too, right? Um, And, you know, why this came out and why this came to be the case. And it really all started in 2013, uh, I think. No, 2014. I'm sorry. 2014. I wrote down 13, but I don't know why. Um, 2014. And it's when I accepted the call to be the pastor of a church in Vernon, Alabama, called Lighthouse Community Church. Uh, And it was planted five years before I arrived at that church. And I took this pastor position, uh, assuming things would be different than they were, and quickly realized it was going to be more of a replant than actual just pastoring a church. and there, there's a lot of reasons for that, not, not really a time or a place to go into those things. but that's what the reality was for us. So we kind of went in uh, two years of ministry under my belt, which is none, none at all, and take in a church that needs to be replanted. and uh, what God did for us in that period of time was really opened our hearts and minds to the idea of planting a church. Um, But we thought that it would be our hometown slash uh, county, which is over in Pickens County in Gordo, uh, Alabama. But that was not the case for us, as you see today. Uh, But we knew that even though we desired to plant one there, uh, in 2019, we knew it wasn't time yet. We couldn't explain why or express why or put our fingers on it. We just didn't feel a peace from the Lord to plant there uh, and so I accepted the call to be the youth and college pastor at Hill Baptist Church in Millport, Alabama, which is just a few, uh, about 20 minutes up the road. And in my time there, um, we figured we would stay about two years, two to three years, and then plant a church in Pickett's County. We were still on that thread of things. We still thought that that's what God desired for us to do in, in our lives, because when we planted a church, we knew that this would be where we would invest our lives, that we would plant the church, and we would desire to be here until we retired or died, or God was made it clear that we were to do something different. But we went in the intention that we were going to be there forever, and, you know, in 2020, I think like many people's lives, everything changed. Um, COVID hit, uh, but not only did COVID hit, but our big three got home to us the day that COVID shut down the world, and, uh, which is in, let's see, four days, four days when everything shut down. And when COVID shut down everything, our big three made it to us and then God put in our path uh, several guys and, and ladies, but specifically guys for me uh, that were college age. They either attended the W or were in the Air Force in pilot training. And after starting to meet with these guys and disciple them, really just beginning to notice a gap for many people that arrived to Columbus if it were for the college or for the W. And even since then, I see it in other areas of life if it be language barriers or be whatever the case may be, that when they're not from here, it is difficult at times. Not that churches aren't actively pursuing those people, but it is a difficult thing to do. And so as we begin to see this whole, we started to pray and to seek the Lord with the idea of what is now Redeemer. Now, we would have not guessed it looked like it does now, or we would have not assumed that we would have went through what we've gone through, the things that we have and haven't. And I know we've said this many times, but I just want to state it again. And just to be clear, there's many reasons why we believe that God has called us to plant Redeemer Church in Columbus and why others have kind of bought into this mentality and been a part of Redeemer. And I think it's three primary aspects of this area that is so appealing. And the first is that it is multi-demographic. Uh, And in the Columbus and surrounding areas, it's not all of one. It's a lot of different uh, financial breakups. There's a lot of different uh, social, economical things. There's a lot of racial things. There's just a lot of diversity in this area. And that was appealing to us. The second one, though, is the fact that the Air Force is here and it's focused on training pilots and installing them worldwide. And then the third is that the W is here. And we feel that God's desire for Redeemers to focus upon reaching these transient communities while we're still reaching those who have decided to make Columbus their long-term or permanent home. And like I said, since we started this, we've also seen other areas where transient nature has come to play in the life of people around us. So they fall into that category as well. This morning's text, though, I believe is particularly helpful for us as a church this is because as we seek to reach this transient community that makes up the Columbus area, there will often be very difficult goodbyes. And as we look at this text, I believe that we'll see a clear charge and challenge to the most, both of those who are departing and those staying behind. And so that gets us to Acts chapter twenty seventeen through 38. So I tell you all of that to say that I believe that this morning's text, um, and I'm trying and fighting against the mentality of looking application first, not uh, actually what's going on in the text first, but I do think that this is relevant to us as a church. And so, uh, let's read it together, and then we're going to preach through it. It says now, starting in verse 17. Now from Malais, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials. That happened to me though the, through the plots of the Jews, How did I not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teachable? You in public and from house to house. Testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And how? And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem. Constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my own life as value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I not shrink from the declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to the careful the care of the church which is obtained with his own blood i know that after my departure fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them therefore be alert alert remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with the tears. And now I commend commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all of those who are sanctified. I coveted no one silver or gold or apparel. You yourself know that these hands ministered by my necessities, and to those who were with me in all things, I have shown you that my working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them. All there were and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him being sorrowful most of all because the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this example in your word of the departure of a godly man and the staying behind of godly men to lead your flock. And God, we pray that you would use this to sanctify sanctify and grow us this morning, that we would be more like your son, and that we would be people that would live as we feel called to by proclaiming your word, your gospel, and teaching others about you. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I believe that before we get into verse 17, that it would be helpful for us to understand what Paul's time in Ephesus looked like. So we're going to take a minute or two to look at that, and then also just look at why this point of ministry was significant to and for Paul. So beginning in Paul's journey here, what we saw was early on in his ministry and early on in his uh, missionary journeys, Paul's desire was to go into Asia, which is where Ephesus was. But God did not permit him to to do so, to the point that God provided an angel, a dream for him, to say, don't go into Asia yet, it is not yet time. And at the end of his second missionary journey, we see that God opens this opportunity for him to uh, visit Ephesus very briefly as he was traveling back to to Anatomy. Antioch and in this moment they expressed this desire for him to stay and to teach and he expressed his desire to return but only if the Lord would permit for him to do so. But needless to say we see that the Lord did allow him to go back and he did as soon as he left Antioch and traveled back to Ephesus. So not too long after he said if the God would permit I will come back he came back. And in this time there, he initially met a group of men that knew of Jesus, but seemingly did not know Jesus. Which is when we see the sign of the Holy Spirit falling upon those in Ephesus. Then the text would tell us that for three months, Paul was able to teach and reason with those in the synagogues of the Jewish background. He was able to do so like he desired to in every other city. But he did there longer than anywhere else. For three months, he reasoned with them in the synagogue. But eventually, just like everywhere else he traveled, they became stubborn and speaking ill of the people of Jesus. So Paul took the disciples that were there with him those who had come to know Jesus in his time and his ministry within this three-month period, and they met privately in homes. But he also reasoned with outsiders in the hall of Tenerius for two years, proclaiming the word to those that traveled to and away Ephesus to the point that, God had traveled, that the gospel had traveled to other regions in Asia. During his ministry in Ephesus, we see that God was doing extraordinary miracles, healing all types of sicknesses and disease and all casting out demons to the point that even his handkerchiefs and aprons of Paul were able to do these amazing things. This led to many to be bold, but not necessarily in the positive way, because we see that there were seven sons of Siva, the high priest, that they thought they could cast out demons like Paul did, and let's just say it did not go well for them. I think the thing that came to the realization when the demon spoke back and says, I know Jesus, I know Paul, but I don't know who you are. And it went bad from there. Soon after we see these events unfold, some businessmen realized that preaching the, the, of the way, the gospel was causing less and less business for them when it came to creating idols and things of the liking, mainly people that worked with metal and gold and silver. So they caused an uproar and a riot in the city against Paul and the other disciples. And after this intervention of a local town clerk, there was no serious repercussions for Paul and the disciples. But though we see this was the case after this uproar, Stopped. Paul departed from Ephesus and made his way to Macedonia where this young man fell out of the window and died while Paul was preaching and teaching throughout the night. But then he hurries down. He raises him from the dead. And then Paul departs from there and he makes his way to Miletus, And that's where we pick up this morning. But why is... The length of time important. Because what we see in Ephesus is that Paul spends either two and a half, his time frame throughout the rest of Acts will show two and a half years, and then Paul says three years in the text that we just read. So it's kind of like how if you you say, you know, um, Sarah and I have been married 10 years. We haven't been married 10 years. September would make 10 years. We've been married nine in whatever months that would be, right? So Paul could be just saying, look, I've been here. I spent three years with you when it was really close to three years. It was like a month or so off the way. Or maybe Luke in his writing is just missing the mark a little bit and just adding up a little wrong we're not sure which one of but they're just speaking he's speaking to the people and he says look i've been with you three years it may not be exactly three years but he's been with them that's serving alongside these men for three years but think about it the first people paul encountered in ephesus were people that knew of jesus but did not know jesus So when Paul arrives on the scene, and after this three-year span, most likely everyone that was a believer in this church, Paul either was a direct impact on their life or played a part of their salvation. Paul was the one that would have installed all of these elders that he's speaking to into this ministry role. They were invested in, he was invested in these men that he is talking to. Three years, day and night, laboring with these people. This was different than any other place he had been because of the sure time frame of it being three years and everywhere else was a month to six months at most. Paul was invested in these people. Outside of the church of Philippi, I would say the church of Ephesus had his heart. So what we see in this text is this, that Paul arrives in Miletus. He calls for the elders of the church to come to him. And though we don't know why he departed just to call them to him in a different location. So why did he leave Ephesus before talking to them? And why did he have to go through Macedonia to make it to Miletus and then call them? We don't know why he did that, other than it's arguably because of the riots and the hardships that had, had occurred in Ephesus. But he arrives there, he calls them to him, they arrive, and he essentially splits up his speech in two parts. With this transition in the middle of it. He begins by looking backwards at his time there. and Then he looks forward for what their time will be like with him not there. And then in 22 through 25, we see that he speaks of the fact that they will never see his face again. Now. This speech is often misunderstood as a last will and testament, essentially that Paul knew he was going to go and die. And so this was his last words to them. But it should not be read this way because Paul did not assume that he would go to Jerusalem and die for his faith, but rather that he would go to Jerusalem and then to Rome and his end of his life and ministry would be there in Rome. But we also know that the book that is Commonly known as the letter to Ephesus was written by Paul after this speech. This was not his last words to them, but the last time in which he saw them. And looking backwards, though, we see that Paul is primarily focusing upon the manner in which he personally interacted and ministered to them while he was with them. And how this should be an example for them going forward. It's very similar to that of a parent teaching a child for 18, 19 years for them to go out into the world to then live life. That yes, he may write to them, talk to them, communicate with them, but they were on their own then. They had to figure it out And the way in which he was trying to push them forward. by saying, look, remember, 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 this is what it was and this is what it was like. This is what you're going to have to be like. And while looking at what was to come, Paul speaks of the reality that was going to be facing them and that there would be wolves that would arise inside and outside of the church that would try to preach a gospel that was contrary to the one that he labored over with them for three years. And remembering the past and looking for their future, I believe that there are some key takeaways for us today. So that instead of walking word for word through this, I want to highlight those things. And so we see that this is the departing words of a godly man. But let's see the first part of that is that we see Paul's current reality in our regular one. Verses 22 through 23. We'll look a little more like verse by verse, but let's get some background of... What was at the heart of the matter here? Twenty two through twenty-three. Says and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So Paul is saying, Look, I don't know what's going to happen when I get to Jerusalem, but what I do know is going to happen eventually is that I will be arrested for my faith, that every city I go to, the Spirit, it just teaches me that this is what's awaiting me. I would argue here, and a lot of people do this, and I would do this about other things, but I would argue here that maybe this was the actual thorn in Paul's flesh, that that everywhere he went there was going to be an an imprisonment for him. But this is not new knowledge to us because we've preached through Acts, right? Acts chapter 11, 27 through 30 says, now these are the days of the prophets came down. Oh, I'm sorry. Let me explain. This is why Paul is going to Jerusalem. Now, if you remember right. Acts Chapter Eleven and Acts Twelve was this transition between Peter and Paul, uh, but there was this little section of scripture twenty seven through thirty that was there, but arguably not supposed to be there because the famine had not yet happened, but it was way of Luke's writing to introduce Paul to the scene again after he had been converted to uh, Christianity by the vision of Christ on the way of, on the way to Damascus. And in this, we see in 27 through 30 of chapter 11, he says, Now in these days, the prophets came down to, from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood and foretold that by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So most likely Paul would have been, this is what he would have been doing. He would have been taking aid from Antioch to Jerusalem to provide for this day of famine that was to occur. But in 19 verse 21, we also see, it says, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia to Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. Paul knew that his time would not end in Jerusalem, but he would make it to Rome. Then in Acts 20, verse 16, just one verse before this, For Paul had decided to sell past Ephesus, though he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Paul was traveling to Jerusalem, but with the understanding that he would end up in Rome before it was all said and done. The reason why this is important is because we're going to get to his departing words of the sadness of, I will never see you again, but let's try to get in the mindset of where Paul was. But we also see that he talks about how that uh, he would be imprisoned, that the Spirit would speak to him everywhere he goes, that he would be imprisoned for his ministry, his gospel. So we know that though Paul was uncertain, he knew that imprisonment and affliction was awaiting him. But why? Why was he so certain of this? He says because the Spirit told him every city he went. But we see in the book of Acts, we see this reality playing out. Acts chapter 9, verse 16. This is when Paul has been blinded on the way to Damascus, and then Ananias is in the city of Damascus. God comes to Ananias and says, my servant Paul is here. He's blinded. You need to go pray for him and over him. And Ananias responds, I think, like we all would, is, but is he not the one that is killing and persecuting Christians? And what does Jesus say to Ananias in this moment? For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of, of my name. Paul knew that his ministry, his backbone of his ministry was going to be the suffering in the faith. See if Luke was aware of this, Paul was aware of this moment too. Acts twenty one, thirty three, we haven't got there yet. But it says Then the tribunal came and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he has done. Paul certainly makes it to Jerusalem and is arrested there, as he felt like he would be. But we know by the rest of the book of Acts, he does not stay in Jerusalem, but rather pulls the Roman citizen card and makes his way to Rome. But in verse 24, I think there's a small application before we get into the deepness of application of this text. Paul says, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course, the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, something very similar at the very end of his life, and the last letter that he most likely wrote that we have a record of, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. Paul says, look, as long as I would finish my ministry well, and then in Second Timothy, we see he does exactly that. But I think arguably, we would fall out, find ourselves in a very similar place of Paul in Acts chapter 20 here. That unless God does something different, then we would desire and we live a shorter life than we expect. We're still at the middle of the ministry in which he is calling us to. That we should continue and finish the race in which he has set before us. And the thing is, and I would argue this in all of life, is that the people that look back and say that they finished something well are the ones that desired to do it from the beginning. That they set their mind and they set themselves apart to do this. That if we want to be old men and old women one day that says that we finished the race, that we fought the good fight, and we have done this, and we have kept the faith, then we have to set in our hearts now to do so. But in verse 25, everything after 25, I think, would have been hard for the people to hear because of the deepness of 25. It says, And now, behold, I know that none of you, among whom I have gone, about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. These are men, as I said earlier, that Paul either led to the faith or led in discipleship that installed as elders of this church. Paul interacted with these men day in and day out, You also see that Paul says that with these hands I have provided for myself and those who labor with me. Paul also financially provided for those who did ministry with him by working on their behalf physically. Most likely building tents or some form of leather work. Paul knew these people well. They knew him well. Most likely he slept on one of their couches. Whatever that may look like, right? Paul knew these men well, so this was no easy departure. What we see in this next thing, though, is the second point I want to point out is the example of a godly man. And just to kind of preface it, I, I, I personally just don't believe that we should look at the Bible and primarily look at every biblical character and say that we should be like them or we should not be like them. I don't think that's how we should read Scripture. I think we should read Scripture uh, descriptively and prescriptively. And I do think that in this moment we do see a good example of some characteristics in which we should live by. And I don't think it's out of order to do so either because in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Anybody know what that says? It's very short. I figured somebody might. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He knew it? Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul calls those that are following him to imitate him as he imitates Christ. Now, I don't think we could be as bold to say that in every area of our life. And I don't think Paul would have meant that in every area of his life either. Because Paul was one that was well aware of his sin and his fallen nature. But Paul is speaking these words to them. And I think we could look at his speech here and we can do the same. That we can imitate Paul as he imitated Christ. Because all of these things I'm going to mention are things in which Christ did as well. So... You're going to see a list of them. The first one is that we are called to serve the Lord with all humility. Look at verse 19. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Paul humbled himself in all humility with plots of the Jews. Think about this. Paul sat under one of the most influential synagogue leaders of the day. And he sits by and just takes in the plots and trials of those of the synagogue. He humbles himself with all humility, which reminds me of two verses, which is James chapter 4, verse 10. If you want to write these down, you're welcome to, or you could turn with me. James 4.10. I can email you my sermon if you want the scriptures that way. James 4.10. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. The first thing that we're called to as believers is this example of a godly man set before us is to serve the Lord with all humility. And when we think through these things, I think of two types of areas here. Paul is the one leaving, giving this charge to them. But he's saying, this is what I did when I was with you. So regardless, if we think of ourselves as the one staying or those that are depart- departuring, departing, departing. The reality is we're still called to the same thing. So my charge and challenge as we look at all of these things is that we would be this here in Columbus, and if God called you somewhere else throughout the world, that you would be this there. And then for us that stay here, that we would be an example and call people to these things as they come here. And it starts with Humility. We certainly see all throughout the book of Hebrews that Jesus humbled himself. The second thing is to commit to the teaching of God's worth both publicly and privately. Now, the privately could be independently, or it could be in your homes, or it could be Bible studies, it could be discipleship, one-on-one groups, it could be three to four groups, it could just be you and your spouse, you and your family reading privately, you take it how you want to take it, but publicly is simple, that we would be committed to the teaching of God's Word publicly. I would argue that this is a public teaching of God's Word, and so is every other church that has gathered in teaching God's Word. But look at verse 20. He said, How I did not shrink from declaring to you Look at the phrase there, declaring to you. He's not talking about unbelievers here, but he's talking about the believers that I declared to you, to you elders. Anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. That he does so in a public setting, but also a private setting, because both was necessary. That he didn't balk away. He didn't balk at the hard things. He didn't stop. He, he taught it completely. Which I'm thinking of. Two more verses. Paul's words to Timothy. In 2 Timothy 4 verse 2. Preach the word. Be ready season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. With complete patience and teaching. But just kind of cross reference. We have Peter saying a very similar thing in 1 Peter verse 3, chapter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy and being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks of the reason of the hope that is in you, yet it be in gentleness and respect. That one's for the next point. I'll read it again then. But see here, Paul, not only practicing this public and private teaching and preaching of the word, but calling his main and primary disciple that he wrote to, Timothy, to do the same. But in verse 21, we see this change from believer to unbeliever. 21, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We can look at a lot of what is uh, great commandments, great commissions. We get a lot of those. We have four or five. We, but since we're preaching Acts, so I'll read Acts 1.8. But you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth that we're called to proclaim the gospel to those around us. Paul says that testifying both to Jews and Greeks. So the Jews were those that believed in Yahweh, but did not believe in Yeshua as Savior. The Greeks were those that were the ones that were making the false gods that caused the riot because they quit buying the services of the businessmen. Paul was able to preach and teach the gospel to both sides. I thought of not only Acts one eight, but I read it a second ago and I'll read it one more time so it's in the right location, but first Peter chapter three fifteen. This is all of our callings. But in your heart honor Christ as Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. That we should be prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have found in Christ Jesus. And if that is not the gospel, then we are not hoping in the right thing. But then in verse 27. Committing to leading those who God provides in discipleship. And you may not call this discipleship, but I certainly would. For I did not shrink away, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Or Romans ten fourteen through 17. How then will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As is written, it's beautiful the feats of those who preach the good news. But how? But they have not yet obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, the Lord who has believed what he has also heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We have to lead those that God provides in discipleship and teach them the whole counsel of God's word. We're going to read it at the end. And I'm going to I can quote it, but I'm going to read it just so I make sure I don't mess up the phrase here on the fly. Matthew 18 uh, 28 18 through 20. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. We certainly see the call to making disciples, but a disciple is simply a follower of Jesus. So it says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But listen, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We are called to teach the whole counsel of God's word as we lead those who need to follow Jesus closer. It doesn't matter if they arrive here or you meet them somewhere else. If they're unbelievers and they come to know Jesus or if they're on spiritual milk and they need to be on steak, You're called to lead those whom God provides in discipleship. And then I think the last one is to financially and physically support the ministry. Verses 34 and 35 Now, let's be clear. Paul received funding from churches. The primary church that funded Paul was Antioch. And the second church we see that funded Paul primarily was that of Philippi. So we're not going to ignore the fact that Paul... We're not going to ally Paul didn't receive funding from churches and income from churches, because he certainly did. But listen to what he says here. Verse 34 and 35. You yourself know that these hands... Listen, I just want you to pause and imagine him speaking to these people. He probably raised his hands, pointed to them. He says, these hands, right? These hands have ministered my necessities. So he's saying, look, I've taken care of my needs from my hands. I've I've done what I needed to do to do so. And to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord: how He Himself it is more blessed to give than to receive. I don't think this is a proof text on uh, ministers not receiving uh, ministerial funds to provide for their families and things of the such as an income. But I think what he's getting at here is that there is an area of life that when it's necessary that we get our hands dirty and we provide for the ministry. Now, Paul was the example of this. and As we've discussed this, if he met in the hall of tea, I forgot the, how to, I can't really say it well right now without reading it. If he's teaching in the hall of tea for two and a half years, day in and day out, the financial charge that would have been. Paul worked hard. The other people worked hard, and he calls them to look at this example to see it as a way in which they were able to provide for those in need. So we have to physically and financially support the ministry. This is oftentimes referred to being a good steward. Financially, we see Proverbs chapter 3, 9 and 10 it says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the firstfruits of your produce, and your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. Physically, though, Colossians chapter 4, verse 5, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of your time. Someone that is a sloth is not making the best use of their time. They're walking wise with outsiders. They're physically doing ministry. If that means doing a job to provide for the ministry or physically doing the ministry. Ephesians five fifteen through 16. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time because the days are evil. Same thing were called to physically, financially and physically support the ministry. If Paul was willing to do this for the church of Ephesus for three years, certainly we are called to do the same. But very practically, why was that necessary? Because for these people, when they accepted Christ, they abandoned their life. They lost lost the family that gathered in the synagogue. In many of the pagan backgrounds, they would have lost the family that gathered in the temples. They couldn't have been a part of culture the same way they once were. So it was necessary for the body of believers to come together and to provide for one another. Slightly different today, but the charge is still there. We're called to financially and physically support the ministry, however that has to look. Then the last point this morning. um, Listen, I'm going to be clear in this last point. Um, So David and I are elders of the church. He's talking to elders here, right? And he's telling them to watch this, to watch for this. So this is the call primarily for the elders of the church. But what I would argue It is crucial that you as church members to keep the leadership of the church accountable to these things and also to check your own hearts to make sure you're not a wolf. We certainly have to do it as elders of the church, but you're called to do it as well because you have what is called, what pastors and elders are called to in Scripture, so you know what to look for. And that's what we see in this. So the first thing we see is that the wolves at the gate now, I, couldn't, I could not preach this without making that reference, but I also could not preach this without reading John chapter 10. And listen, this is lengthy, and I apologize, but I'm going to read 21 verses in John chapter 10. So if you want to turn with me, it would be a really good thing to do to follow on. because this is a fantastic discourse uh, that Jesus is teaching. And as I read this, I may pause and say something and then keep reading. And uh, yeah, so that's how it'll probably look. Truly, truly, I say to you that he, will, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in it another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd and the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens the opens And the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, leads them out. And when he has brought them out, all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him. They know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know how the voice of the strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them. But they did not understand what he was saying to them. I'm going to pause there. So Jesus is saying, look, there, there's one that's going to get, they're going to get the sheep. But they're going to climb over the fence to get the sheep. And he is not the shepherd. He says, I am the shepherd. I stand at the gate. I call my sheep and they come to me. Verse 7. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come to me are thieves. Come before me, are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and he will go in and find a pasture. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And I came that they may have life, and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who is hired hand is not a shepherd, but does not own uh, does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am a good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, but I must bring them also that they may listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my accord and I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. There was again a division among the Jews because of the words. Many of them said he has a demon. and The other says he's insane. Why listen to him? And others said these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Why do I read all 21 verses here? It's because when Jesus is resurrected from the dead, he finds himself on a beach with a man named Peter, and he gives Peter a charge. Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Then we see this call of the disciples to go, therefore, and it's really this progression of the, the ministry of being a pastor. Now, not the same, but similar, okay? Why do I read this? Is because Jesus himself warns that there will be some that jump over the fence that take the sheep, but there's some that, there's one shepherd. And the one that jumps over the, the, the fence is the one that is, going to take and eat and devour of the sheep. But he is going to call them. Now, he's talking about salvation here. We're talking about something slightly different, but it's a similar analogy. And then why is this important? It's because in verse 29... Let me get back to where I was. In verse 29... Well, first, let's pause. Verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers and care for the church. was obtained by, with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Paul is looking at these elders and says, look, those wolves at the gate, they're going to come in. And they're going to try to devour. And you have to be ready for this. You have to defend this. You can't let this sit by and happen. He says, I've been here for three years. I've prevented it. Now it is your time, elder, to prevent the the thief to come and to steal and destroy. How does one do that, though? I think in the same way that he warns the next group of settings here. The next setting here. Verse 30. He says, and from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So this is where it gets hard. He's looking, he says, look, there's going to be wolves coming in the gate, but also some of you, some of you elders, some of the ones I love and you love me, some of the ones that carried him to the boat. He says, some of you, you're going to be wolves too. That shouldn't surprise us. Jesus picks 12 and one denies him, but also one betrays him. Shouldn't surprise us. But how do they do it? I would argue that they both do it the same way, speaking twisted things. That the way in which Satan attacks the church and its believers is by taking the word of God and twisting it into something that is incorrect. So what is the charge of the elder here? To teach what is correct. To not only stand up against what is false, but teach what is right so that the flock could recognize what is right and what is wrong. This is why we preach verse by verse through Scripture. This is why we try to be theologically sound and robust. It's because this is necessity for us to recognize when things are false that we have to be open-minded to ways in which we can still grow and reform our understanding of God and His Word. But we're called to protect the flock and you as the flock are called to recognize when wolves enter either by the gate or from within. And then we see at the end here in verse 36 through 38, this difficult goodbye. I'm not going to read all of it but I want to highlight one very important application here. And I think this is what we have to remember as a church, as we receive those that are in the transient communities and we send them off. Look at verse 36. And when he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. That may seem so minute in Christian culture, but it is the most significant thing that happens in this moment. Why is that significant? Why is this so important? Because look with me in verse 32. And now... I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all of those who are sanctified. Paul was saying, I was never enough and I'm not enough now, but I'm giving you to the one that is enough and it is only interacted with and accomplished by praying for the god to of the harvest to do this the god that would lead and guide and direct you to do this so paul after all of these hard things he says all of these warnings all of these examples he kneels down and he prays for them and would be crazy to think that they don't pray for him He's already said, I'm going and I'm going to be in prison. I don't know what it looks like, but I know what's happening. They're praying for each other. Philippians chapter 4, 4 through 7. We know this, but rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Let the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, but be by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understandings, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Catch that. Don't be anxious about anything, but pray in, with, with prayer and supplication with thanksgiving to the Lord. Make your request be known to him. And what happens as your request is known to the Lord? That you would have the peace of God that surpasses all understandings, that will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul was saying, let your hearts be at, let your hearts be at peace. Paul left, I would argue, with his heart at peace. I don't think their hearts would have been at peace, but I think that's what he would have desired for them. So the final application there is as people go and come, we pray and we pray and we pray. And so this morning, as we transition to a time of communion,